It was John MacArthur who said that Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. I suspect it's one thing to be faithful to the Lord in moments of comfort. It's another thing to be faithful to the Lord in moments of catastrophe. It's one thing to be faithful to Christ in moments of triumph. It's another thing to be faithful unto the Lord in moments of tragedy. It's one thing to be faithful to Christ when you are successful. It's another thing to be faithful to Christ when you have a setback. I think John MacArthur just might be onto something that Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. Today we continue our seven-part sermon series on the seven letters to the seven churches. We began last Sunday, and today we come to the second letter that Jesus wrote to the second church. is the church at Smyrna. It was a church that knew something about suffering. And so Jesus wants to speak to a suffering church as the suffering Savior, and he wants to talk about when saints suffer. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, let's begin at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The city of Smyrna was a beautiful town located on the Aegean Sea about 35 miles north of Ephesus. She boasted herself as being one of the oldest towns in Asia Minor. To say that the citizens of Smyrna were patriotic is an understatement. Now there were numerous cities throughout the Roman Empire that were headquarters for the imperial cult worship of Caesar. Smyrna was one of those cities. They would hold patriotic rallies for Caesar that would make our 4th of July festivities look childish. Everything was labeled about Caesar. Everything uh, was enamored with Caesar. Everyone in that town declared Caesar is Lord. It dominated their religion. It dominated their politics. It dominated their commerce and their marketplace. Now, all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the Romans cared very little if you bowed the knee to numerous gods and goddesses. But one thing they were adamant about, every citizen of the Roman Empire had to declare Caesar is Lord. And everybody in Smyrna said that. They said that loudly. They said that boldly, except for a band of believers. These band of believers were devoted they were adamant that Caesar is not Lord but Jesus is Lord and because of that it cost them nearly everything no one knows for sure when the church at Smyrna was founded no one knows for sure who established the church this is the only place in sacred scripture where this church is mentioned even though people don't know when it started or by who it started it doesn't stop people from speculating 
Some have said that it was founded on the days after Pentecost when people came and they uh, heard the gospel proclaimed by the apostle Peter and some have said maybe some citizens of Smyrna were some of the 3,000 that were saved that day. They heard the gospel, they responded in faith and then they went back home and told the good news. Still others have said that probably what happened is when the Apostle Paul was making his third missionary journey and he was there in Ephesus for quite a long time, there may have been some citizens of Smyrna that migrated down to hear the Apostle preach and they heard the gospel, they received uh, it in faith and they went back home and God used them to start a church regardless of how it was started, regardless of, of who was instrumental in founding and forming the church at Smyrna. Let it be said this morning that the greatest evangelistic tool that the church has at her disposal is an individual who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. I don't know what baggage or bondage you bring into the sanctuary this morning, but let it be known today that the church's greatest evangelistic tool is an individual who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. Don't sell yourself short of what God can do to you, in you, and through you. He wants to transform you from the inside out. And he can take just a few of us and do a tremendous work for his good and for his glory in the kingdom of God. God just took a few individuals, they heard the gospel, they responded in faith, and they started a church. A church that was faithful unto the Lord, a church that was steadfast throughout the ages, a church that suffered greatly, yet they were persistent in their passion for Christ. So my friends, don't ever sell yourself short of what God can do to you or through you because God has great plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God can use you to accomplish mighty things for his kingdom. That devotion came at a great price. The members of the church Smyrna suffered greatly. Because imperial cult worship was so prevalent in Smyrna, the people that declared Jesus as Lord, they lost their homes, their property, their possessions, their 401k, their nest egg, it was gone. These Christians in Smyrna suffered greatly from heavy taxation that was targeted to them just merely because they were Christians. They were targeted with taxes not only from the local government of Smyrna, but also from the greater government of the Roman Empire. They were leveled fees and fines and taxes just because they would not say Caesar is Lord. Because they were Christians, they lost business. They lost business partners. Individuals would not do transactions with them simply because they were Christians. They were followers of Christ. Certainly they must have had a lot of friends who told them, hey, just pipe down, shut up, and go along and get along. Just say Caesar is Lord, and then go to church on Sunday, ask God to forgive you, and then say Jesus is Lord, and everything will be all right. But the Christians there in Smyrna, they said, no, there is no way we can sell out on Jesus. He didn't hold back on us we're not going to hold back on him and because of their devotion it cost them greatly they lost much of their worldly wealth they lost their prestige individuals lost their reputations some people lost family members others lost their very lives they were persecuted just because they were adamant that Jesus is Lord 
The scenario I just described to you took place 2,000 years ago in a city called Smyrna, but that description is not too far-fetched even in America today. And I want to ask you that if that day were to come, would you be one who would say, I'm so devoted to Christ that I will be willing to lay it all on the line for the Lord, even if it means suffering and persecution. This church was willing to suffer and their devotion came at a mighty high price. I can't think of anyone greater to speak to this church than Jesus, the suffering Savior. So in the opening line, he identifies himself. As the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life again. In all seven of these letters, Jesus identifies himself in a particular way to a particular church for a particular reason. He wants this church to know in Smyrna, he wants them to know he is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. So he uses a phrase that is rich in Old Testament uh, symbolism. He says, I am the first and the last. It was the prophet Isaiah who was quoting the Lord. And the Lord said, I am the redeemer of Israel. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So when Jesus declares, I am first and last, what he's saying is, I am God. He's not saying he's another God or a lesser God, a creation of God, merely like God or similar to God. He is declaring, my identity is, I am God. He is God in the flesh. Now you may not affirm that Jesus is God. You may come in here and affirm that Jesus is God, but whether you vote for him or not, that doesn't diminish the reality that he is God. His deity does not rise and fall on popular, popular public opinion because Jesus is God. He declares, I am the first and I am the last. In the book of Revelation, he says on two occasions, in Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, it serves as bookends around this apocalyptic literature. He gives a triad. I am the Alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am God. But not only is he God, he's also completely human. Jesus says, I am the one who died and came back to life again. This infinite, eternal, sovereign savior of the universe compressed himself into the womb of a virgin girl. And Jesus was born of Mary. He lived a perfect life. He did mighty miracles. He told other people who he was. He told other people how to get close to the Lord. He said, come and follow me. And then on Friday, he stumbled and staggered up a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there with the weight of your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, Jesus died. He was crucified, a horrific death. It is worse than we could ever really fathom or imagine. And Jesus writhed in pain. He declared unto the Lord, it is finished. What is finished? Payment for sin is finished. Your sin debt paid in full. The, the, the debt that you owe that you cannot pay, Jesus stepped up and he paid it for you. He died in your stead. He took the punishment that you deserved. He who is innocent was declared guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in his sight. He hung to make us holy both now and forevermore. He died in your place and in mine. And on Friday, he laid down his life and died. And the one who has the authority to lay down his life also has the authority to pick it back up again. 
And the reason you're here today is because early on the first day of the week, on the third day, the day that we call Glorious Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, Jesus got up. The one who died came back to life again. He raised his own life back up because he has authority to lay it down. He has authority to pick it back up. In fact, death did not come and take the life of Jesus. Jesus willingly gave himself over to death and he crushed the serpent's head and he conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave. And on the third day, Jesus got up and it changes everything. And I know for 2,000 years, they've been looking for the bones of Jesus and they ain't found them yet. And guess what? They ain't never going to find them because Jesus was literally and physically and bodily raised from the dead. So Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, I am the one who is the first and last. I'm the one who died and came back to life again. I am the God man. We remember the words of Old Testament where the psalmist said he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity. And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The New Testament author to the Hebrew letter says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such sinful opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. If anybody has the right to speak to a suffering church, it is Jesus, and Jesus gives himself as testimony, gives himself as the model. He says, I am the God-man. As you follow me in life, you follow me in death, and I will take you from this world to the one to come. So Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty, yet I think you're rich. And I know the slander of what's being said about you. That word to know means to know exhaustively, to know intimately, to know completely, to know thoroughly. Jesus says, I know. It's not that he merely has a working knowledge of what's going on. He knows it completely. Once again, I don't know what you drag into this sanctuary this morning. I don't know what drags you into the sanctuary this morning. But regardless of what it is, God knows it. Jesus knows it completely and thoroughly. Nothing catches him off guard. He knows everything about everything that's going on in your life. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows how you're feeling. He even knows what you're thinking. There's nothing that is hidden from the Lord. Everything is exposed unto him. He knows everything. Scripture says of Jesus that he knows even when the sparrow falls to the ground. For there's no sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the will of God. The Lord even knows the number of hairs on your head. Now that's pretty detailed, don't you think? He knows you completely. He knows you exhaustively. Jesus says to the church, I know your affliction. That word affliction means trouble or tragedy or tribulation. I know what you're going through. 
I know the pain. I know the agony. I know the suffering. It's not a question of will we suffer. It's a question of how will we suffer and how will we respond to it. Suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. And Jesus says today, hey, I know your affliction. I know your pain. I know your trouble. I know your tribulation. I know what keeps you up at night. I know what worries you. I know what occupies the pit of your stomach. I know your affliction. He also says, I know your poverty, yet I think you're rich. Now, that's specific to the church at Smyrna because they literally were losing all their worldly wealth. They were losing it because it was being confiscated from them. They were losing it because of unemployment. They were losing it because of heavy taxation. They were losing it because of fees and taxes. They were losing it because it was being stripped from them. They lost their homes, their possessions, their jobs. They were losing everything. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, but I think you're rich. You know, there are times when I really question what kind of grades Jesus made in mathematics. Because there's sometimes when his arithmetic just doesn't add up. One time, Jesus and the disciples were watching as people placed their offerings into the offering plates of the temple. There at the temple, historically, there were about 13 trumpet-shaped brass receptacles. People would come by and they'd throw their money into those brass receptacles. And the more expensive money was the heavier money. It would clink, clink, clunk all the way down as it spiraled to the bottom of that receptacle. And Jesus watched how the fat cats came by and they threw in a lot of money. And it made a lot of noise, brought a lot of attention to them, not necessarily to their gift. And then Jesus saw a widow. She came and she gave two small copper coins. Then she walked away. Jesus poked the boys and he said, hey guys, did y'all see that? They said, see what? Did you see how much she gave? Yeah, Jesus, we saw. She only gave two small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny, lightweight, not very heavy. You couldn't even hear it as it spiraled down. And Jesus said that woman gave more than all the rich guys. Now, friends, I know a lot of preachers, and I don't know very many preachers that would agree with Jesus on this one. How in the world can you say an offering of a penny is more valuable than a check of $2,000? How can you say that, Jesus? Jesus says, listen, they gave out of their excess. They gave what they could spare. She gave it all unto God. She gave more. Hers was more valuable. On another occasion, Jesus told a story. He said a, a master paid all of his servants the same wage. Whether they worked one hour of the day or whether they worked a 12-hour shift all the live long day. Now, friends, I know some businessmen and I know some businesswomen. And I don't know any businessman or businesswoman who would adopt those payroll practices in their business. I don't know anybody that would do that. They wouldn't be in business very long. Whether you work one hour, whether you work a 12-hour shift, you're all going to get the same amount of money. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, economically, doesn't make sense. Mathematically, doesn't make sense. Business, doesn't make sense. Yet Jesus isn't necessarily talking about how to run a business, but he is talking about how God runs his kingdom. But there are times that the mathematics of Jesus just doesn't add up. Not humanly, not logically. This is a case in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. He says to the church of Smyrna, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. How can he say that? Well, apparently for Jesus, 
Money doesn't equate to wealth. That wealth in life is not the accumulation of possessions. I mean, the more stuff you have, that doesn't mean that you're a wealthier individual. According to Jesus, you cannot have much worldly wealth and be the wealthiest person on the planet. Or you can have everything that the world has to offer and you're poor as a pauper. According to Jesus, it's, it's not about do you have more money? It's about do you have more Messiah? It's not about do you have more stuff? It's about do you have more of the Savior? It's not about do you have more trinkets? It's about do you have the treasure of heaven? If you have Jesus in your life, you have everything that you need. If you have Jesus in your life, my friend, you are the wealthiest person on the planet. I don't care what your bank account says. I don't care what's parked in your driveway. I don't, I don't care how large your house is. But if you have Jesus, you, my friend, are the wealthiest individuals on planet earth. That's what Jesus is telling the church at Smyrna today. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's nothing wrong to have a nice car. Nothing wrong to live in a big house. But just make sure that big house doesn't have you. And just make sure those cars don't have you. Just make sure you're not possessed by your possessions. Keep everything in perspective. This is what calls the Apostle Paul to say in the letter to the Philippians. I consider everything a loss compared to the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is rubbish. Now that word doesn't strike us as very odd, rubbish. In Greek, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's really kind of a, a bad word. It, it's a slang word for an expletive, dung. It, it's, a, it's a word that means everything else I, is just, it's poo. I mean, everything else I just, I just wash away because compared to the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord there's nothing greater than knowing Christ if you put together all my stuff if you put together all my accolades if you put together all my education if you put together all the accomplishments all of that pales in comparison it's rubbish compared to knowing Christ this is what Jesus is reminding the church at Smyrna he's saying I know your poverty I know what the bank account says I know what's been robbed from you. I know what's been taken from you. I know the business deals that didn't happen because of your love for me. I know the unemployment line. I understand the heavy taxation just because you're a Christian. Jesus says, I get all that. But I think you're rich because you have the treasure of heaven, not just at your house, but in your heart. You have the treasure. Jesus says, I know your afflictions, I know your poverty, I know your slander. Actually, I know the slander that's spoken against you. I, I know that he said, she said. I know what people are saying about you. You think you know what people are saying about you, but Jesus says, I know what people are saying about you. You have a hunch, I know exactly. I know exhaustively, I know completely what other people are saying. I know how they're making fun of you because of your love for the Lord. I know how they're ridiculing you and Jesus is telling the church, listen, when they ridicule you, they're not really ridiculing you. They're ridiculing me. But I, I know the slander. And the slander is coming from religious people, quote unquote. Those who think they're the people of God. But they're really the synagogue of Satan. Ouch. What an indictment. Jesus says, this, this 
harsh language, this slanderous tongue is not coming from a reprobate. It's not coming from somebody outside the church. It's coming from somebody within the church and Jesus levels against that individual. You're not a child of God. You are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know all that. You know, there's something comforting to know that Jesus knows, isn't there? And whatever you're going through, whatever struggle, strife, tragedy, heartache, trial, tribulation, whatever pain, whatever it is, it's nice to know that Jesus knows. There's some comfort to that. I know that Jesus knows what I'm going through and what you're going through. Isn't that swell? But if you're anything like me, there comes a day when you say, Lord, since you know all this, why don't you stop it? Since you know my pain, why don't you alleviate my pain? Since you're so well aware of my suffering, why don't you just remove my suffering? Because I sure would like that a lot. If you would just remove it and alleviate it and lighten my load, not just for me, but for my friends here, the things that they're going through, Jesus, why don't you just alleviate it? You know it, and that's comforting. But Lord, since you know it, and we know that you're able to do all things, you can imagine me more, we can ask, think, or imagine. Since you know it, why don't you just remove it? Maybe I'm the only one in the house that's ever asked that. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever thought that way. But I do think routinely, Lord, since you know everything, why don't you just remove or stop or alleviate my suffering? That word affliction that I said could be translated as trouble or trial or tribulation, it can also be understood as pressure. Jesus says, I know the pressure that you're feeling. I know your pressure point. Everybody has pressure points. I know the level of stress that you're under. Everybody, everybody has levels of stress. Jesus says, I, I know your pressure. Do you know there's such a thing as good pressure? Not all pressure is bad pressure. Some pressure is, is really quite good. Have you ever stopped to think how a diamond is formed? I've been told that a diamond is a girl's best friend. That causes me to scratch my head because guys... We get a dog as man's best friend. <laughs> we get a dog, girls get a diamond. Something not fair about that, but need I digress? Have you ever stopped to think how a diamond is formed? A piece of carbon is subjected to intense heat and enormous pressure over a significant amount of time. And when that happens, a diamond is formed. A piece of carbon subjected to intense heat and enormous pressure over a significant amount of time. Have you ever had a conversation with Mr. Diamond? You ever talked to Mr. Diamond? You ever allowed him to tell you his experience? If you ever talk to Mr. Diamond, he may tell you a story that goes something like this. There was a time when I was about to throw in the towel. There was a time when I was about to quit. I said to Mr. Creator, Mr. Creator, I can't handle this pressure anymore. I literally have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Here I am in the earth's crust. I'm surrounded by hot magma of the earth. 
It is overwhelming. The intensity is enormous. The temperature is through the roof. I can't handle the heat. I can't handle the pressure. You're going to have to get me out of here one way or the other. I can't stand it anymore. I'm about to throw in the towel. I'm about to quit on you. So, Mr. Creator, you better do something or you're going to knock me out and I'm out for the count. And Mr. Creator said to Mr. Diamond, you hang on and hold on because I'm not through with you yet. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I know the temperature of the magma. I know exactly where you are in the center of the earth's crust. I know exactly what you're going through. I know your pain and your struggles. I know your worth and your value. I know what other gemstones are saying about you. Now, let me tell you, Mr. Diamond, Mr. Creator says, I'm going to get you where I need you to be. And Mr. Diamond says, well, that sounds good because you'll get me out of this mess. I want you to get me out of this mess and get me someplace else. And Mr. Creator says to Mr. Diamond, I'll do that, but I got to use some subterranean volcanic activity to get you from where you are to where I want you to be. And Mr. Diamond says, I don't like the sound of that no more because that sounds even worse than where I currently am. I don't like the idea of subterranean volcanic activity, but Mr. Creator says, I got to get you to it and I got to get you through it because when I get you to it and get you through it, I will galvanize you. I will strengthen you. You'll be stronger and more valuable and more precious on the other side than you ever are on this side so Mr. Di- Mr. Diamond you just got to believe in me you just got to trust in me you got to hang on and hold on so Mr. Creator calls the subterranean volcanic activity and eventually that diamond was formed eventually that diamond was shaped eventually that diamond was pushed and pressured to the earth's crust it was mined and refined and regarded as one of the most precious stones on the planet one of the strongest stones on the planet what I'm trying to tell you is this my friends don't give up and don't give in I I understand that the pressure is intense. I know that the heat is enormous. I know that the suffering is legitimate. But God is not through with you yet. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. And I'm going to use it for your good and my glory. I'm going to use it. And on the other side, you are going to be stronger more effective in ministry than ever before. So don't give up. In fact, he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. That word, do not be afraid, that's a command that's given numerous times all throughout the Bible. I've been told what you've been told. There are 365 do not fears in the Bible. Maybe, maybe not. Some people count it, they can only get to 108. Some people count it, they get to 500. I don't know how there's that much discrepancy. But I know why they say they're 365. One for every day of the year. Because friends, it's tempting to be fearful, isn't it? We don't know what the future holds. We don't know about the test results. We don't know if the prodigal will ever come home. We don't know how long the unemployment line will be. We don't know about the struggle and strife. We don't know how long the answer will be that will alleviate the problem that keeps us up at night. We don't know. And the easy thing is for us to be fearful, to be afraid. And repeatedly throughout the Bible, God says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Here he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. That word about means certain. Do not be afraid of what you certainly will suffer. Your suffering is imminent and it's unavoidable. 
It's never a question of will you suffer. It's a question of how will you suffer and how will you respond to the suffering. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. For the devil will persecute you, Jesus continues. He will throw some of you in jail for 10 days. That's an interesting line, isn't it? That the devil's going to persecute you by throwing some of you in jail for 10 days. Now, did Jesus mean a literal 10 days? Was it a week and a half incarceration? We do know this is apocalyptic literature. Much of the language is is draped in symbolism, dripping uh, with mystery. So maybe Jesus just meant a definitive amount of time, a short amount of time. Then in the cosmic scope, 10 days is nothing, but it's 10 days. Whether Jesus means a literal 10 days or a symbolic 10 days, I don't know exactly. But this much I know. Jesus is telling the church, your suffering has an expiration date. Your suffering has a shelf life. You go to the grocery, you go into your cupboard, you look at any can, and there's an expiration date. Beyond that date, it is not valid. It is not any good. It is not useful. Your suffering, my friend, has an expiration date. I know it feels enormous, but it's not eternal. I know it feels overwhelming, but it's not everlasting. Your suffering has an expiration date. Now, I'm more excited about this than you are. I can tell by the looks on your faces, but I've been thinking about this a little longer than you have, so I'll cut you some slack. But I gotta tell you, it is exciting to think that your suffering has an expiration date. Your cancer has an expiration date. Your sickness has an expiration date. Your disease has an expiration date. Your depression has an expiration date. Your broken relationships have an expiration date. Your addictions have an expiration date. Your heartache has an expiration date. Your headaches have an expiration date. Your chronic pain has an expiration date. Your uh, disability has an expiration date. Your trouble has an expiration date. Your tribulation has an expiration date. Your affliction has an expiration date. I wish you'd tell somebody your suffering has an expiration date because God is not through yet. Jesus is telling the suffering church, you hang on and you hold on because I'm not through with you yet. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. For the devil's going to throw some of you in prison for 10 days. Friends, some of you are in day one. Some of you are around day seven, day eight. Some of you are right there at day nine and the 10th day is right around the corner. You're one prayer away from a breakthrough. You're one experience away from a miracle. You're one moment away from God to break in and do something spectacular. Whether you're on day one, day five, day seven, day nine, regardless, you know that God is not through yet. You be faithful even to the point of death. Christian faithfulness is forged in the furnace of adversity. Jesus says, you be faithful. To be faithful is to trust God regardless of the outcome. It's to take God at his word. It's to be faithful unto him. Whatever he has placed before you, you can go through it, not in your own power, but in his power. You be faithful even to the point of death. That could mean the point of martyrdom, or it could mean that moment when you're 97 years old and you're on your deathbed and you gasp your last bit of air. Either way, you be faithful unto the Lord. For he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, 
the overcomer, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, is he or she who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he was dead and buried. You believe that he was raised on the third day. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the God-man, fully God, fully man. The Bible says you are an overcomer. And to him who overcomes, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death is what the book of Revelation refers to at the end of the writing as being cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And Jesus says, if you are an overcomer, if you believe in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Don't fear about eternal condemnation. Don't fear about being separated from God. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus took all of your condemnation upon himself at the cross. So you have nothing to fear about the second death. Have you ever read the Gospels and realized that every time Jesus bumps into death, death dies? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus goes to the home of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. He says to Jairus' dead daughter, Talitha Ka'um, which means little girl, get up. And the little girl jumped to her feet and she ran around the room. Jesus bumped into a funeral procession in the village of Nain. There was a widow who was grieving the death of her son. Jesus went up and touched the coffin and said, little boy, get up. And the dead boy sat up. He scooped him out of the casket and said, hey, ma, here's your boy again. And then on that day that Jesus went to the cemetery of his best friend, Lazarus, he ordered for the stone to be rolled away. He said, hey, Lazarus, my friend, my buddy, my pal, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. Every time Jesus bumps into death, death dies. On Friday, Jesus was staring death in the face. Death was on the back porch. The chill of death was overcoming the Savior. And Jesus said on his terms, in his times, for he was calling the shots, he declared, it is finished. Your sin debt paid in full. Only now, death, can you take my life? Because actually, you can't take my life. I'll just give you my life because it is finished. It is completed. It is as good as done. It is is as good as ever will be done. It is finished. The Greek word, to telestai. And Jesus declared that word. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. And then on the third day, the first day of the week, Easter Sunday morning, Jesus got up. The one who died came back to life again. He got up. He got up and he's raised from the dead both then and now and forevermore. He will never taste death again. It is once for all. It is once for you. And so you, my friend, can come into this moment in this very day and you can say, I cast all my cares upon the Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the the son of God. You're the one who died and came to life again. And in that moment, you will go from death unto life and you'll be adopted into God's family. Oh, my friends, I want you to know this is a game changer. It changes everything everything for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So I can tell you because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds my future and life is worth the living just because he lives. I came this morning just to tell you that even though you're suffering, I want you to know he lives just because you're suffering. He's not done with you yet. Just because you're suffering, he's going to galvanize into your life. Just because you're suffering, I want you to know that Jesus is a alive and because of that he can bring you to it and he'll bring you through it
So this morning, maybe you're here and you don't know why you came. You don't know why you're here. Somebody just made you come. But you're here. And my friend, if if you were to die today, would Jesus welcome you into his kingdom? Would he recognize you as belonging to him? If not today, you can call on him by faith and he'll give you eternal life. Maybe you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord, but you've got some things that are weighing you down. They're heavy, it's hard, trial, trouble, tribulation. You don't know if you're gonna make it. This morning, I I wanna encourage you to come and just dump it here. We call this the altar, that's a very sanctified word. I call it just a trash dump. We just come and dump our trash right here. Say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I can't handle this. I just lay it at your feet. And when you come and do business with Christ and you dump your trash and you turn back to your seat, don't reach back and grab your trash and drag it back with you. Just leave it. Just leave it. Cast your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. He's alive, and it changes everything. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Have your way, we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.